You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. I'm going to pray for us as we dig into this together. Father, we are so grateful that you have sent Jesus to us. Jesus, thank you for coming on a rescue mission to save us sinners. And Jesus, thank you for teaching us and giving us your wisdom. You are the originator of wisdom. And so as we read these words, God, help us to soak them up. Help us to absorb all that you have for us here. And Jesus, help us to be changed from the inside out, we pray. For your glory and in your name, amen. I have a friend uh, named, well, I'm not going to tell you her real name for the sake of anonymity, but her name's Jill. We'll call her Jill, okay? And Jill graduated from college a number of years back, and afterwards, she was a new Christian, and she was hoping to go into the mission field. She was planning this trip to Zimbabwe, and she was planning on living there and, and doing that. But they were having a bunch of political turmoil, and it was difficult to get into the country. She wasn't able to do it, and she couldn't leave yet. And so she was in this holding pattern, like, what do I want to do? I've graduated from college, but there's this thing in front of me that I'm pursuing that I can't do yet. So she, she went out and got a job, and she got an internship at a, a large bank in a large city other than Seattle. And she was poor at the time, as you can imagine. I mean, she had school loans, right? She's living on her own, scraping by, and she's doing an internship. Don't get a lot of money for that. And as she came to work each day, she would see people begging on the street. And it broke her heart to see these people in need. And at the same time, she felt overwhelmed by it because it was just so many people in need. And she began to pray about it, not really sure what to do. God, I, I can't do a, a lot here in this situation. What are, what are you asking me to do specifically? And she felt God telling her that what she needed to do is if someone was hungry, someone she encountered was hungry, she would share what she had with them. She would feed them as she was able. And one person who was there every single day was a dude named Ken. And she describes him as looking like Santa Claus, you know, he's kind of got white hair, big white beard, and he would sit in front of the Starbucks on the intersection on the corner of, of two uh, main streets, and he was this familiar fixture in uh, the downtown environment, the downtown corridor. People, if they were around, they would have recognized this guy, but nobody talked to him. Nobody knew Ken, aka Santa Claus. They just knew him as Santa Claus, pretty much. And, and as Jill was walking past, sometimes she would get stuck at the light trying to cross the street, and he would be sitting there. And so finally, she kind of caved, and, and she began to talk to him. And she began to uh, learn more about him, and she learned that Ken needed food. And so she gave him lunch every day. Every single day, she would bring him lunch, and uh, you know she's working in banking, and banking's a pretty high stress environment. It's fast paced, you know, and she worked in this this high rise office tower, and she would only have a, a short fifteen minute coffee break every 
day. And so she'd come down from the high rise, she'd run out there, give him his lunch, and, and go back up and continue on with her work. And she started ask, asking him what he wanted to eat for lunch the next day. So she had this like exchange system. She'd, she'd make her lunch in the morning and she would make a lunch for Ken. And, and then she would bring it to him in a Tupperware and he would give her a clean one for, that she had given him the day beforehand and they would exchange this. And what I want you to notice about this whole scenario is that Jill was doing this quietly. She wasn't announcing it. She wasn't letting the whole team at work know that, oh, I'm going to go feed the homeless guy. I'll see you guys in a few minutes. You know, she wasn't doing that. She was just quietly disappearing, quietly blessing this man. And, and enter another character in the story is uh, her boss. And his name was Joe. And he was a guy who had been working in the banking industry for decades, kind of an all-business sort of a guy, kind of a jaded dude. And... Uh, after about a year of working for him, finally the opportunity came for Jill to go to Zimbabwe. And Joe, the boss, actually threw her a going away party. And during the party, he embarrassed her a little bit. He told the whole team, he kind of waited and got everybody's attention. He said, I want you to know that Jill feeds Santa every day. Everybody called him Santa. If Jill feeds Ken every day, apparently... Joe the boss had been watching and observing and seeing what she was doing on these breaks, and he kind of put two and two together that she was feeding him. And all the bank staff, of course, was just celebrating her, and wow, good job, you know. And, and then in front of everyone, Joe the boss asked, why did you do that? Why did you do that? And she said, I think everyone deserves the same dignity that we do. And through sharing lunch with Ken every day, Jill learned more of his story. She began to learn that he had, how he had come to be in this lifestyle, and he had been a FedEx employee delivery guy for many years and kind of gotten off track in his life in general. He had lost his marriage in the process. And on the last day that she was at work, he asked to come into to, to the office with her. And so she brought him up, and as they went into the building, he said, I haven't been here for 23 years. I don't want people to see me like this. And what I want you to hear is that Jill blessed Ken. Jill blessed Ken. She upheld him in the dignity that God bestows onto all people. And she did it every single day without accolades, without, you know, being celebrated without being noticed, well, at least other than by her boss, uh, every single day. She did it for the glory of God and for the good of a person in need. And I think it's a good illustration of the ministry that we are called to as Jesus' followers, as, as Christians. It's a, it's, a, it's a ministry that we get to do as his representatives. And it's also a good illustration of what Jesus is teaching us today in our text. What I think we're going to see from him here, big idea, is praising God is more rewarding than praise from people. Praising God is more rewarding than praise from people. 
Now, before we dig into the text, we'll, we'll get really deep into it in just a moment. I'd like to actually set it up a bit, because it has been a year since we did the Upside Down Kingdom series, and even if you were here, you probably don't remember where we were at and where we, we left off. Uh, and Jesus is continuing this idea from, from where we left off. Last year, we concluded with chapter 5 in the final verse, which said uh, in verse 48, it said, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we said Jesus isn't talking so much about moral perfection per se, but more about wholeness or completeness, meaning that our inward person is the same as our outward behavior. We're not a contradiction. And in chapter 6, where we're picking up today, he's continuing that same idea that God is not interested merely in our righteous behavior, I'll put quotes around that, but he wants and he deserves the whole person. Much like Jesus ends up talking about later, you shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart, your whole mind, and with all your strength. Not, not part of you, but all of you. Not just what people see, but also what only God sees. And so the, for the majority of chapter 6, Jesus will emphasize the importance of this kind of wholeness, this complete devotion to God, and he'll do it through a few different case studies. We're going to look at the first one today, but these, these case studies are ways in which people practice their faith, giving to the needy, prayer, fasting, these kinds of things. And Jesus is not going to condemn us for having religious habits. He's, he's going to focus on who we are doing things, those things for. What's going on in our heart as we practice our faith? Are we hypocritical or whole? Do we put on a show for people to earn their praise? Or do we really love God and we just want Him to get praise? Let's begin. Verse 1 in chapter 6. Here's what Jesus says. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is talking about doing justice. This word righteousness is kind of interchangeable. And we looked at that just a couple weeks ago. We looked at Psalm 72 and what it means to do justice as Christians. But he's basically talking about the living in a way that God would have us live. That's what he means when he says practicing your righteousness. And here he introduces this concept of hypocrisy with this phrase, in order to be seen by them, or in order to be seen by people. And if you guys will indulge me for just a second, I'd like to be a word nerd with you for a moment. We, can we do that? Is that okay? And it's not just for nerd's sake, although it, it is fun. Uh, it's actually because words matter, and I learned a ton by studying this more deeply this week and understanding what Jesus is meaning. So the Greek word that's translated as to be seen here is where we get our English word for theater, Okay, so put that together. That's where we get our English word for theater. And the word later in verse 2 translated as hypocrite originally meant actor. Okay, interesting, right? So what does that mean? That means that Jesus was addressing the fact that religious people have a problem. 
And it's not just religious people, if we're honest, right? It's also the atheists, it's the secularists, it's the agnostics. We all have the same problem, and that is that we turn the world into our theater, and we become an actor who seeks to get the applause of an audience. We can tend to pretend to be righteous, and I need to throw that in quotes again because it's not righteous at all. In God's economy, righteousness involves that whole person, not just the behavior. And so the word hypocrite actually eventually came to mean godless one. Living a life of hypocrisy is living a life apart from God. But you know, we don't actually tend to think of hypocrisy this way. We, we tend to think of hypocrisy more like it's saying one thing and doing another, right? I mean, that's, that's how I've looked at it. Uh, and, and that's a problem, of course. <laughs> it's not a good thing, but it's a different kind of problem. It's, it's related to hypocrisy, but it's a little bit different. It's more like honesty and integrity. It's not quite what Jesus is talking about here. And, it, and, it, and it's important to understand what Jesus is actually talking about because if hypocrisy were assenting to a certain ideal and then failing to meet that ideal, then that would describe every single Christian. Amen? That's us, right? That's, that's the Christian life because we're all constantly growing up into Christ and we're constantly failing to meet that standard. That, that's the Christian life. We want to aim there, but we won't get there until we see Jesus face to face. And yet, not every Christian is a hypocrite. That's what I think Jesus is saying. It may even be fair to say that while all of us can have hypocritical tendencies, someone who's a serial hypocrite or someone who that's just how they live may not be a Christian at all. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And so this warning is alarming. We've got to pay attention to it. So let's think about it for just another minute here. What would it mean to be a hypocrite? How, how do you know if you're a religious hypocrite? Well, I'm going to give you my thoughts on that based on what Jesus is teaching here. The first one is that you evaluate your performance based on other people's performance. If you're a religious hypocrite, you make your faith about winning, again, putting that in quotes. So, of course, you want to make sure that you're the best. You want to make sure that you're winning, and and as a result, you're in this constant flux between pride and shame. Pride when you're doing great, man, I'm awesome. Shame when you fail, I'm worthless. Number two, you're jealous when other people's good deeds are noticed. You know, you you find it hard to actually celebrate someone else and their gifts or accomplishments because you're constantly evaluating who is winning. And when other people win, you're upset about it. You're, You're losing, Number three, you're angry when people don't notice your good deeds. Not only are you jealous when other people are celebrated, you're also mad when you aren't. You're like, man, I did all that work and no one said anything. 
How dare they? Jerks, right? Number four, you live for praise from people. And earlier I actually said you long for praise from people. I think all of us long for praise from people, but there's something different that Jesus is talking about. I changed it this morning because I think this is more specific. You live for praise from people. This is, this is such a desire in your heart that it actually spurs you on to do good deeds. Things that look good on the outside, things that look good in the eyes of religious people. So you know, you only read your Bible when you have an audience so they can see you. You only pray when you have an audience so they can hear you. You only serve when you have an audience. You don't actually care about people. They're just, you know, they're, they're a means to an end. That's how you get your praise, is by serving. You only worship God when you have an audience. You don't actually care about God. He's just a means to an end. You're a religious actor. God have an audience. And so Jesus will show us that there is a better way to live than this. But first, he has to continue to expose this folly of hypocrisy. He's going to point out the fact that our choice to live either hypocritically or holistically is actually based on which one we believe has the better payoff. Which one do we believe has the better payoff. He's actually begun to introduce this in verse 1, but he's going to repeat this word three times within these four short verses, the word reward. Reward. What are we to take away from that? Jesus wants us to pay attention to what reward we are after. So let's look at the rest of this with a few questions on our mind. What reward do you deem most valuable? Reward from people or reward from God? Let's look at verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Okay, let's talk about what this scenario might have been like that Jesus is describing here. First, though, notice that he said, uh, when you give to the needy, not if you give to the needy. And that leads us to, to learn a little bit about this scenario. What was the world that Jesus was living in like? Well, it was a religious world. This uh, command to give to the needy. He doesn't actually command it here. He does elsewhere. But he doesn't have to command it here because it was such a well-established command in his culture. There's an Old Testament uh, scholar named Dr. Kenneth Bailey. And I'm going to steal a whole bunch of stuff from him here that I want to share with you. I think he, he helps set the stage well and helps us understand the context because he lived in the Middle East for uh, over 40 years doing ministry in Israel-Palestine and Lebanon and Egypt, and he's just very familiar with that culture, and then, of course, studied the history behind it. And he says that beggars were typically people uh, who had some sort of ailment that prevented them from providing income for themselves. So they were disabled 
In some way, maybe they're paraplegic or blind. And, and as such, that begging was considered a recognized profession in the Middle East. And so the poor person would beg, which was looked at very differently than we look at it in our culture. Like if, in America, if you see someone begging on the street, and I'm not, I'm not saying we all think this all the time, but what you're conditioned to think is that person needs to go get a job and go provide for themselves, right? That, that's, that's how we think about it, but not in that culture. In that culture, they thought that person is providing the, the community a service by begging because they lived in such a religious culture. Everybody pretty much believed in God. Everybody's assumed, at least, to be pious, and so everyone would give alms to the poor. God commanded it. What, what else are we going to do? We've got, we got to do it. And so the poor would beg because if they weren't out there asking for your money, you wouldn't have the opportunity to give alms. You needed to know that they had a need. And even when they were begging, they wouldn't you know, have a cardboard sign that says anything helps or spare change or, or something like that. They would say, give money to God. You're giving money to God. And so their culture viewed this not just simply as giving to the poor, but really as the poor giving the opportunity to fulfill our religious duty to God. Now, of course, they would do this in as public of a place as possible. And as you gave to them, they would stand up and they would, if they could stand up, they would stand up and they would pray God's blessing on you and your family and your business and your health. And as a result, you would be praised as the most honorable and noble person that this beggar has ever met. <laughs> yeah. And according to Bailey, this still goes on in the Middle East to this day. And so you can see why this scenario that Jesus describes would have been a very common one, but you can also see how it would have lent itself to hypocrisy, right? And that's why Jesus is showing us something much, much deeper. He's showing us not just the stage, the theater, the acting. He's showing us something below the surface. He's showing us what's going on behind the scenes. He's showing us that when you give to somebody, you actually get a reward. And he wants us to consider what that reward is and who we're seeking it from. He's saying if we're seeking that reward from people, that's the end of it. They've received their reward. You've literally thrown out your reward from God, which is a very, very strong warning for us not to seek the praise of people. And so if someone, if you or I are an actor stuck in religious hypocrisy, Jesus now is going to be so gracious, he's going to give us a better way. Here's the solution. Jesus is going to say, change your theater, <laughs> change your audience, stop acting, and receive a reward that won't fade away. Verses 3 and the beginning of 4. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And, 
And you know, as I was preparing this week, I was kind of thinking about, well, how would we apply this at Trinity, you know? And I decided that the next time that we raise money for, you know, children of the nations or urban impact or one of these things like we, David talked about earlier, we're going to stop telling you how much money you guys gave because we're going to keep it a secret. Does that sound good? I'm kidding. I'm sorry. That, that, <laughs> that's, that, that's, that's not, I don't think, the application of what Jesus is trying to say here. Uh, but what, what exactly does he mean if that's not what he means? Like, think about this. You can't not let your, what is it, your left hand know what your right hand is doing, right? Unless you're that three-headed knight on Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Do you guys remember them? Like, do you remember that? So the guy in the middle is, or one of the guys on the end is like, you have bad breath. And the guy in the middle is like, that's because you don't brush my teeth, right? And, and maybe they don't, might not know what their left hand or their right hand is doing, right? But seriously, let's get rid of that. Okay, uh, what is the point of what Jesus is really saying? What is he saying? He's saying that if you've been an actor in the religious theater, if you've been putting on a show for people's applause, then you need to repent. That's what he's saying. You need to repent. You need to change. And he's saying part of that change is deliberately seeking to be secretive about your religious activity, including being secretive about giving to the poor. Because if you've been living in this hypocritical lifestyle, you've actually twisted up your relationship with God. You can't even handle the praise of people, so don't do anything in a way that will earn it for you. You've got to just get over here and deal with your own relationship with God. Begin to live in a way where you're just loving Him and worshiping Him and your, your good deeds begin to flow from that place. We've got to remember, though, that, that what Jesus is saying here, give, that your giving may be in secret, this isn't a blanket command for all of our good deeds, all of our giving in general, all of our righteousness. In fact, just a little bit earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, you guys might remember this, Jesus had said that we're to live in such a way where others see our good deeds. If you want to pop that up there, Kat, uh, what is it, uh, Matthew 5 verse, no, this next one, uh, 5.16 I think it is, yeah, there we go. He says, we should be living in a way where other people see our good deeds and glorify our Father who's in heaven. So which one is it, Jesus? Which one are we supposed to do? Again, he's causing us to evaluate our hearts. Who are you doing it for? What are you doing it for? In the end, who gets the glory? Who gets the praise when you do something good, especially something that's religiously admirable? Do you gladly accept the glory that's actually due to God? Or do you direct others to glorify your Father who's in heaven? You know, I, I've had to actually guard my heart from the desire to earn people's praise by practicing something when people give me affirmation. So just trying to apply this principle in, in a setting where somebody might say something and affirm me in some way, I try to say thank you for that, for affirming me, and 
glory to God, right? There's some, there's some church cultures where they're just like, hallelujah, right? They, they use that kind of language a lot. And that, I think, in its root is the same kind of principle, glory to God. Or when I affirm someone else for what they've done, I'll often say, praise God and thank you. And David actually said that earlier when, we, when he was talking about our financial update. And it's not just semantics. It's actually intentional. These are like the, you know, those bumpers when you go bowling, right? This kind of practice, it, it, it helps keep me anyway in the lane, right? It's so easy to fall into one of those pitfalls, into those traps of religious hypocrisy. Practicing speaking and responding in those ways helps me. Finally, as we conclude this, this passage that we're in today, Jesus reorders our motivation. He gives us a higher calling than earning praise, and he addresses the fear that some might have that if they do good deeds and no one notices, are they going to be okay? Jesus says, yeah, you're going to be good. You're going to be good. Here's what he says in the second half of verse 4. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He will reward you. Commenting on this passage, John Calvin says, the theater of God is in the hidden corners. The theater of God is in the hidden corners. Jesus is saying that your reward from your heavenly Father should be enough. It should be enough. The desire that we should have for this reward should be enough to motivate us to live in true righteousness in God's way. We might ask, well, okay, it's fine if you want to say that, but what exactly are we talking about here? What is this reward? What, how much is it worth, right? Like we're trying to find the best deal on a car or something. Is my father's reward more valuable than people's praise? Now, obviously, the hypocrites don't think so, because in their view, robbing God of praise is worth more than giving God praise. But Jesus has proven to us that the hypocrites are wrong, that really they're fools. Living a life of hypocrisy is foolish. Why? Because you're giving up the kingdom of God, relationship with God, knowing Him, eternal life with God, right? You're giving up all of these eternal gifts for something so fleeting and temporal as people's praise. That's why it's so foolish. And can I just kind of testify to this for a moment with you? Uh, I, I have to confess that there are times where I'm more interested in people's opinion of me than I am God's opinion. That's an easy pitfall that I've fallen into time and time again that God's been working on in my life it's been ingrained in me in a few different settings, though, because I began playing in bands uh, when I was 13, and for many, many years after that, I continued to play uh, shows and, and tour and do all that stuff, and I was playing music for people's entertainment, and it felt good. People, when they like it, it felt good to make people enjoy something, right? And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. That's not my point here. My point is... What did it do to my heart? (laughs) 
And I began to learn what that did to my heart when I started uh, stopping playing music in, in that setting and beginning to lead worship in the church setting. I had to reckon with how had I been conditioned? How had I conditioned myself in that other setting? And I had to work with the Lord for a long time, for, for really for years, on my heart, looking at what a different motivation could be for me doing something other than earning people's praise. And years later, I started preaching. And I had to go through it again. I had to do it yet again, uh, because there are these similarities, right, between uh, doing music and, and preaching. It, a lot of times, what I'm doing right now, and it feels a little weird to talk about preaching while I'm trying to preach, <laughs> but a lot of times it can feel a bit like a performance, right? Here I am, I'm standing on a stage, I want to do a good job so that, you know, it, it can have a, an effect on people. And there's a certain degree of pressure that comes from that. Everybody's got their own ideas of what a good sermon is and isn't. And on top of that, I'm just a flawed person. Amen? Amen. Amen. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I'm just a flawed person, I, not only in my skills in preaching, but also in my journey of becoming more like Jesus. I'm on that same journey, just like all of us are. And now what I say, how I say it, what motivates me to say it, I, I have to bring all that before the Lord and, and, and allow that to be a part of my sanctification process, of my growing process. It's easy to let my desire to please people affect this religious activity. That's what I'm trying to tell you. And for years, the Spirit of God has been uprooting that ugliness from within my heart and he constantly calls to mind this fact that I can't make sharing his word about me, which sounds ludicrous when I say it that way, right? It sounds, seems obvious and just completely ridiculous, but I, I do. I have to remember that. I, I have to come up here and speak from a place of sincerity in my own heart. It has to be an overflow of my own worship rather than seeking to be worshiped. I have to be whole, not hypocritical. And the truth that he reminds me of in the middle of that is that I don't need people's approval as a reward. I just don't need it. Remember, verse 4, my father who sees in secret will reward you. He will reward me. I know I already have God's approval because of his grace through Jesus, which is a greater reward than any people-pleasing could ever give me. And we all know people are fickle, amen? I'm fickle, you're fickle. People change. God is steadfast. People require you to constantly please them, to stay in their good graces. And when you live for people's praise as a result of that, you will do all sorts of things to keep up appearances while caring less and less and less about your relationship with God. You'll even give to the needy for your own sake. It's insane. And it destroys you. And so instead of being stuck in that lifestyle, Jesus offers us today, he offers us, he offers you a gift. He's offering it to you. He's saying, come to me. He offers us himself 
he offers us wholehearted worship, which leads to being a whole person. The real you in the presence of God and in the presence of people. And more than that, King Jesus doesn't just show us this wise way to live. He actually makes this living possible. He makes it possible for us to live in the way that he's inviting us to. He comes in divine love, which the Bible says casts out our fear, including the fear of what people will think of us. He comes and he dies for our sin, including the infinite debt that we owed to God for our hypocrisy. It was paid in full by Jesus. And Jesus rose to new life so that we might have new life. So we might be able to live in this new way that he's calling us to. And he ascended and he sent his spirit now to give to us the power to change. Now we can get off that hamster wheel of approval and performance and, 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 and stop looking to evaluating our performance against other people's performance. Now we can find that we're no longer jealous when other people's good deeds are noticed. We can actually glorify God and celebrate the way in which he has gifted them and enabled them. We can find that we're no longer angry when people don't notice our good deeds. We've already got our reward. We find that we no longer yearn for people to praise us. Now our desire to please people can actually be exceeded by our desire to please our Heavenly Father. Our desire to get glory for ourselves can actually be exceeded by our desire to give Him glory. Our desire for the earthly and and the temporal and those fleeting words from people can be exceeded by the heavenly and the eternal. All because King Jesus is making all things new. So I'm going to give you two community group questions to reflect on these things this week. In what ways have you been tempted to live for people's praise? Number one. Number two, read through this passage again, Matthew 6, 1 through 4. What is one thing in your life you want to change in light of Jesus' words. Let's pray and then we'll respond to God together. Heavenly Father, what a sobering word today. What What a challenge, Jesus, for us to truly surrender our hearts to you allow you to expose these parts of us where we're seeking people's praise rather than the praise of God. And Jesus, thank you that we don't need to be afraid of looking at those corners of our hearts. We don't have to wallow in self-pity, but you, Jesus, have already done the work of our salvation. You've already paid the debt that these sins have incurred And so thank you, and we pray that now we would respond to you in trust, in worship, and in just enjoying your presence among us as we are here to connect with you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, 
visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.